Martin Luther and the beginning of the Reformation today. A couple of resources I wanted to call your attention to. There's a great um, documentary on the life of Martin Luther put out by Legionnaire Ministries. I've got the title of that on the back there for you for you to look up. It's available on Amazon Prime and uh, through the Legionnaire website and a couple of other places. So I uh, wanted to recommend that to you. Uh, for those of you who like to listen to podcasts, I've got a couple for you today. Um, the first is called Luther in Real Time. So about uh, almost two years ago now, they start, uh, they, the Ligonier again was the one who produced it. They started releasing podcast episodes exactly 500 years after the events of different things in Martin Luther's life. So it's called Luther in Real Time. Um, exactly 500 years after the events happened. So that was a fun podcast. I listened to it when, it when it first came out, and it was a lot of fun. So wanted to recommend that to you. And one other podcast that's more general in nature, it's called Five Minutes in Church History. Um, and that one is, unlike this class, which is fairly ordered and organized, that one's pretty random. But each of the episodes are only five minutes long, and they just give you a little snippet of something out of church history uh, where David Nichols, the guy who, write, who produces it, um, just kind of talks for just a few minutes about some small aspect of church history and how it might be connected to our faith today. So I uh, just wanted to recommend those resources to you, um, and hopefully you'll enjoy them. Uh, can, I, can you go to the first slide, to, uh, please? So we've been talking for the past few weeks about uh, the Middle Ages, and uh, we've been seeing how uh, the theology of the Middle Ages was really pretty bad. Uh, the popes were morally corrupt, Uh, And by this point, by the time we get to where we are today, they had begun to buy and sell church offices and to tax church members. Some of the things that, if you'll remember from last week, they were actually fighting against. So the things that they had been fighting against in the the better days, now as as we're reaching the close of the Middle Ages, uh, they're actually guilty of the very same things. Um, Superstition and -and out-and-out idolatry were not only sanctioned, but actively promoted by the church. Uh, common people and clergy alike were encouraged to venerate dubious relics of the saints, including purported splinters and nails from the cross, pieces of bone and hair from the apostles, hair from Noah's beard, uh, the thorn in Paul's flesh, all kinds of things were on that list. And they were, the, the people were encouraged to venerate these things as a, as a way of connecting them uh, to the faith, ostensibly, right? Uh, next, pra- next slide, please. Um, that all of kind of a bunch of these kind of practices and the overall spirit of these practices gets wrapped up uh, in the selling of indulgences. And those, the sale of those uh, indulgences become a, f- a focal point for debate and discussion because it brought, some, it brought together so many of the different problems of the church into one loathsome practice. Uh, but to understand indulgences, which we need to understand today because it was, it was something that Luther was specifically starting his it's what, it's what kicked everything off, if you will. Uh, we need to understand the Roman Catholic doctrine of purgatory. Uh, back in the 3rd century, Origen and Clement of Alexandria asked a question. They asked the question, how can we be perfect in heaven if we're so sinful here on earth? Now, it's important to say that they speculated about the answer to this question. It was only speculation. And they speculated that maybe there was an in-between place where we are purged of our sins so that we're ready to stand in, the, in, the, in God's perfect presence. Now, what the early church speculated on, the medieval church turned into doctrine. So they taught that purgatory, they named, I, I don't remember where the term purgatory actually comes from, but they called it purgatory. And purgatory was a place where your remaining sin was removed 
often through a long and painful process of purification. Now, people were understandably bothered by this. Um, the, they were bothered by this idea, and they wanted to know if there's any way they could get out of this long, you know, who knows how long period of time that they would have to purge their sins away. So after some discussion, the church declared that you could remove your sins in this life by hard work and good deeds. Now, understandably, that was not all that much more comforting, um, but the only thing that that gave them was an end date that, was end, that would end when they die, but then they would have purgatory after that, so really didn't answer the question. So the church thought more about it, uh, and the church declared then that some people, those who they termed saints, uh, had, are much holier than others and had a surplus of good deeds and a surplus of merit in their lives that could be transferred to you for a nominal fee. You could pay to buy an indulgence which would transfer merit from this treasury to yourself or a family member and get you out of either some or all of purgatory. Now what the church quickly found is this was an easy way to make lots of money. Uh, even Even though the price of the indulgences was small, there was so many people that wanted them that they just made money hand over fist. So in the 1500s, uh, which is as we're approaching the life of Martin Luther, the church sent out its most, elo- most eloquent and capable speakers to sell indulgences around Europe in order to make money. A man named Johann Tetzel, who was perhaps the most successful and notorious peddler of indulgences in Luther's day, summed up the principle in a pithy jingle. As soon as a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. Not surprisingly, the sale of indulgences brought fabulous wealth to the church. It funded new church buildings, great works of art, and scholarship boomed as the church sponsored the work of some of the greatest minds of the time. The downside was that the shepherds were fleecing the flock and preaching a false gospel. So this is the condition of the church on the eve of the Reformation when Martin Luther would start a firestorm. Next slide. Before we talk about Luther's reforms, though, I want to spend just a couple of minutes taking you through a cultural movement called humanism, and in part, it it made the cultural foundation that made Luther's reforms possible. In 1453, so this is before Luther was born, 1453, the city of Constantinople was conquered by the Muslim armies of the Turks. This was a major event in Western history for several reasons, but the main one for our purposes being that the universities and schools in Constantinople closed and the professors packed up and moved west. Uh, This is called the flight of the scholars in the history books, and the result is that suddenly in Western Europe, Greek and Latin texts that had been forgotten or lost were suddenly available for research research and study. Combine this with the the advent or the development of the printing press in 1440, and these manuscripts and documents were quickly copied and spread all over Europe. The first people to truly take advantage of this renaissance in the West, this, this, in this re-enlivening of, of uh, research and learning in the West were the humanists. Uh, next slide. Erasmus of Rotterdam was easily the most brilliant scholar and humanist of his age. He wrote many books and commentaries, most of which are excellent and worth your attention. Uh, the, burden is, the burden of the humanist movement and its anthem was ad fontes, or to the sources. Now Erasmus picked up that theme as a good humanist, and applies it within the church, and as a result, he's constantly going back to Scripture. If the tools we are, to, are using to reform, as they have been up until this point, are made up of traditions and rituals that have nothing to do with Scripture, it will most certainly fail. 
We must go back to the original texts, which they would now do because of the flight of the scholars in the humanist movement. So Erasmus begins collecting texts and copies of the Bible, and in 1516 publishes the first edition of a Greek New Testament. Later editions would be used by Luther in making his German translation. Now, as brilliant as Erasmus was, he was a bit of a coward, and so he never actually joined the Reformation, even though he sympathized with it. Instead, he just toyed with some of the ideas and was friendly, especially to the Reformation in Switzerland, which we'll actually talk about next week. Uh, But when push came to shove and Erasmus was threatened with excommunication by the Catholic Church, he quickly affirmed his faithfulness to the church and spent the rest of his life half-heartedly fighting against Luther, trying to hide behind a wall of humor. Luther said that Erasmus was like Moses. He could lead God's people to the border of the promised land, but could not go in himself. Questions about anything so far, about the humanist movement or the kind of the cultural, the church cultural context as we're heading into the Reformation? Um, Yeah. That is a good question. I do think that there are some apocryphal references. I couldn't tell you where they are, but I do believe that there are some references in the apocrypha to it. Remember, so the apocrypha, for those of you who don't know, is, is a set of extra-biblical books that the, Catholic, that the Catholic Church would regard as part of the canon. Um, and uh, so they're books that, we, that the overall church never really agreed on, but the Catholic Church says are there. And the, the apocrypha does make mention of purgatory in there somewhere. Or at least there are references that get interpreted as purgatory. I don't know whether the term actually shows up there or not. Good question. Yeah, Kevin. What were they called the humanists? Humanists? Uh, they, they, they were, it was the beginning of the movement, and it was the, kind of the pre-Renaissance um, uh, movement that, was, that dealt with human reason as the, as the key and core thing. So the humanists were interested in seeing human reason and using reason to come to conclusions about whatever it is you were looking to, to study. And so, that, so because it was human reason, they got the term humanist. Yeah. Good question. It's worth noting that the Catholic Church still has indulgences both partial and plenary. Yes. Yes, that's a good question. Was humanism kind of broadly accepted, or was there a counter-movement to that in the church as well? No, not that I know of. Uh, I, didn't do a, I didn't do a deep dive on humanism, but you certainly have a guy like Erasmus, who is very definitely a Catholic scholar. He is definitely a Catholic theologian. And he's a good, and overall, you know, we don't, we wouldn't, there are a few things that we, a few key things that we agree, disagree on with Erasmus, right? Erasmus and Luther were on opposite sides of the, of the Reformation debate. But um, in general, he was a faithful, a faithful Bible guy, and he was definitely a humanist. Um, so, so, and, you saw, and you saw some of the early humanist movement, not the humanist movement itself, but the, the predecessors to it in our, in our set studies from the weeks before, where reason, the Greek, you know, in the, the Greek um, idea of reason being, uh, you know, very significant in the, in the uh, life of the church, even up until, up until this point. So it wasn't a humanism like what we would call secular humanism today, which is something that the church would fight against. Yeah. yeah. Okay, well, let's, let's move on. If you have more questions, we can certainly talk about them uh, towards the end. Uh, next slide, please. Uh, Martin Luther was born in Germany on November 10th, 1483. Early on, his father planned for him to attend university and become a lawyer. But from his youth, uh, Luther, not Luther, 
Luther was deeply religious. He grew up under church teaching and spent most of his early years in mortal fear of divine judgment and the devil in hell. When he was 22, some of you might know this story, when he was 22, he got caught in a thunderstorm and was thrown to the ground by a bolt of lightning. In a fit of terror, Luther cried out, Saint Anne, help me, I will become a monk. When he did not die in the thunderstorm, he kept his word and abandoned law school and entered an Augustinian ministry a monastery uh, in Wittenberg, Germany. Once in the monastery, Luther became a monk's monk, devoting himself constantly to the most rigorous forms of prayer, fasting, and work. Even with all of his efforts to earn God's favor, Luther never escaped the paralyzing fear that had plagued him in his entire life, the judgment of God. Luther tried everything. He attended Mass. He venerated saints and relics. He even made a pilgrimage to Rome where he climbed the steps of Pilate's judgment seat, kissing every step for good measure as he went. He did everything he could to atone for his sin. But none of these prescriptions would work. Luther tried to perform penance for his sins, but was convinced that no amount of penance could make amends. Besides, even if he could perform a penance and contrition for all of the sins in his mind, there were countless sins that he did not even know, indeed that he could not know. Luther was convinced that God was an awful judge waiting to damn him. Luther had discovered that sin cannot be defeated by becoming a monk and living according to the rules set down by the church. As a monk, with a particularly active conscience, Luther caused all kinds, of, all kinds of problems. He harassed his superiors and fellow monks with his incessant confessions of sin. One priest he visited regularly became so exasperated with him, coming to him to confess, that on leaving, oh, then leaving, and then coming back moments later to confess something else, he finally said, Look, Brother Martin, if you are going to confess so much, why don't you do something worth confessing? Kill your mother or father. Commit adultery. Quit quit coming here with such flummery and fake sins. Finally, the church did whatever every bureaucracy does with annoying people it can't get rid of. They promoted him. (laughs) In all seriousness, Luther's supervising priest encouraged him to become a professor of the Bible at the university, a job which Luther took up with vigor. And his first project was teaching through the Psalms. He did this systematically, working through them in numerical order, And when he reached Psalm 22, he was dumbstruck by the statement, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Luther properly understood this to be the cry of Jesus on the cross, but he did not understand how this could be. How can Christ be forsaken, the perfect and righteous judge? This this is a cry that only a sinner could let slip. Why would it come from the perfect Son of God? After much vigorous study in the books of Romans and Galatians and the writings of Augustine, Luther was struck with the conclusion that it must be that God made him who was without sin to be sin for us, to take our sin and to be treated as if it were his own. This realization of God sending Christ to be our substitute, to bear the penalty of death that we deserved, shook Luther to the core. The anguished, guilt-ridden young monk now had a profound sense of God's forgiveness, not of working to merit salvation, but of free, unmerited grace. This understanding was further confirmed as Luther studied the New Testament and the church fathers. It should be stressed that Luther and the other reformers did not see themselves as innovators, developing a new kind of theology or something like that. They only sought to call the church back to its roots, to the theology of the early church fathers like Augustine and most especially the Bible. 
Again, there's this idea of ad fontes or to the sources. These guys were going back to the Bible to understand what should or should not be true. All right, Luther as a reformer. Luther would only later comprehend just how radical this declaration of the gospel was relative to the accepted teaching of the day. His immediate challenge was was trying to reconcile his understanding of salvation as a free gift of God's grace with the church's practice of selling indulgences, a problem which had grown steadily worse. Pope Leo X, as corrupt and decadent as many as many of his predecessors, wanted to build a new opulent church named St. Peter's Basilica in Rome and commissioned a new round of indulgences to pay for its construction. Next slide. In response, on October 31st, 1517, Luther nailed a series of 95 propositions to the door of the castle church in Wittenberg. These 95 theses, as they quickly became known, made two major points. First, if the Pope truly had such control over purgatory and can reduce the length of time there through indulgences, then why doesn't he just release everyone from this wretched place? Second, and more importantly, Luther held that remorse for sins is not a bad thing. Because indulgences was a way to get out from under the remorse of bad sins. So Luther was saying, this isn't bad. One should not seek to escape it by, bear, by buying indulgences. In fact, it is precisely this contrition that leads one to repent and trust in Christ. The 95 Theses provoked an immediate and dramatic response. All of Germany was swept away in the controversy. Luther found his cause being taken up by other scholars who shared both his concerns about the corruptions of the church and his affinity for original source texts, in this case, the Bible. With the help of the printing press, Luther's 95 theses were circulated throughout Germany, and a copy even made its way to Pope Leo X. In 1518, Luther was summoned to appear before a diet. A diet, in this case, is a formal deliberation, deliberative assembly of princes or estates. So it's not anything to do with eating. Uh, so it was a poor, before a diet in the city of Augsburg to answer the charges of heresy. Luther refused to recant and declared that the Pope and the church councils can err. They can be in error. In 1520, Luther published a series of books and tracts attacking the Pope and elaborating his positions. The most inflammatory and consequential of these was titled The Babylonian Captivity of the Church. In it, Luther argued that the papacy was the kingdom of Babylon that had dragged the church into captivity, just as the children of Israel had been exiled in Babylon centuries earlier. He also affirmed only baptism and communion as true sacraments instituted by Christ in the New Testament, and denied that the other five sacraments administered by the Roman Catholic Church, that's confirmation, confession, marriage, ordination, and last rites, uh, he, he refused to admit that those were sacraments at all. He saw them as superstitions manip- uh, uh, manipulated by a corrupt church aiming, uh, uh, claiming, sorry, not claiming, aiming, claiming that only its practices could transfer grace and mediate between God and men. Luther pointed out that the effectiveness of the sacraments depended not on the church administering them, but the faith of the recipient. In other words, communion is only true communion if the person receiving it truly believes in Christ not if the elements of themselves have been mystically transformed by the priest. The sacraments were God's gift to his people, not magic powers controlled by corrupt church authorities. This was the most severe uh, challenge medieval Catholicism had ever faced. It had fought wars with Islam over territory and and had conflicts with European emperors over the relationship between civil and church authority. 
But if the church could not control the application of God's grace through its various sacraments, how could the people trust it? Or could could they even continue to support it? Not surprisingly, the Babylonian captivity caught the attention of the distressed Pope Leo X, who issued a bull or written mandate uh, called Exurge Domine. The declaration began with a quotation from the Psalms. Arise, O Lord, and judge thy cause. A wild boar has invaded the vineyard. Wild boar being Luther. The The bull gave Luther 60 days to submit to the Pope. On the final day, Luther celebrated the expiration of the deadline by burning the bull and a set of writings that supported papal claims. Next slide. As we've seen so many times in the past, the Holy Roman Empire emperor attempted to step into the fray. Charles V, who would go on to become the most powerful monarch between the Roman empires on one end and Napoleon on the other, summoned Luther to appear before the Diet of Worms on April 17, 1521. Upon arriving... Luther was presented with a pile of books and commanded, commanded to renounce them. Before Luther could answer, the emperor halted the procession and demanded that the books be checked. There were so many of them, he didn't believe one man could have written them all. Luther said, and Luther also said, I'd like some time to think about it. He was given a day, after which he uh, replied to the court that there were three sets of books on the table. One set was the books which everyone, including the Catholic Church, agreed with and they, that were solid and useful and to which, therefore, he could not recant without condemning himself. Another set, which he said his personality had taken over, and he had been too harsh against his opponents, and against such harshness he gladly recanted. And then a third set decried the evils of the day, which he could not in good conscience recant. The prosecutor accused Luther of waffling and demanded a straight answer, to which Luther replied, "'Since your majesty and your lordship's desire a simple reply,' I will give an answer without horns and without teeth. Unless I am convinced by scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of popes and councils, for they, can, they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. God help me. Amen. As one scholar has said, with these words, Protestantism was born. And it was born on the foundation of the Bible as the supreme and final authority. Luther's doctrine was condemned, but he was given 40 days to return home. After that, anyone can hand him over to the authorities to be burned. Unbeknownst to Luther, his prince, a prince who was on his side, Frederick the Wise, had made plans to protect him. Next slide, please. On his way home, Luther was kidnapped by Frederick's men and taken to his castle at Wartburg, there there to spend the next year in hiding. Even though struggling with depression, Luther managed to be extraordinarily prolific. While at Wartburg, he wrote many significant works, including a German translation of the Bible that is celebrated still today for its precision and eloquence of language. While there, Luther, Luther also went several psychological and spiritual attacks over and over facing the mental challenge of his conscience. Are you really the only one who knows? Are you, who are you to stand against so many wise men And of course, the spiritual challenge of his own sin. Having removed all of the church's accepted means of responding to sin, Luther was left with nothing to fall back on but Christ himself. This, he believed, opened him up to intense spiritual attack, including visions which he received from the devil, sinful pangs of conscience, and voices which challenged him at his weakest moments. 
until finally, in a fit of desperation, he flung his ink bottle at where he thought the voice was coming from and declared that he was forgiven by the blood of Christ. You can still visit the spot where the famous ink blot at the Vartburg, in Vartburg Castle, though, of course, in the last 500 years, it's probably having to be touched up uh, just a bit. <laughs> Next slide, please. Back in Wittenberg, Luther's followers carried out concrete reforms of the church based on Luther's teachings. On Christmas Day, 1521, one of these ministers held a mass after the new fashion, in plain clothes, with no mention of sacrifice, and in the German tongue. For the first time in their lives, the people heard in their own language the words, This is my body. And at this mass, the host was handed to the people instead of being placed on their tongues for them. In Wittenberg, priests and monks began to marry, and Luther himself followed suit in 1525 when he married Katharina von Bora, a former nun. From 1517 to 1525, in the words of one scholar, Luther was both the most revered and the most hated man in Europe. Over the next two decades, until he died in 1546, Luther kept a lower profile, continued to pastor, and wrote prolifically essays and sermons and even hymns. He engaged in numerous theological debates with the leading thinkers of the day. For example, he carried on a lengthy discussion with Erasmus over the nature of human freedom and the effects of our sin on our inability to choose God on our own. These essays have been collected in a marvelous book called The Bondage of the Will, which is still in print today. Later, he wrote, though he wrote some particularly harsh and unfortunate condemnations of the Jews, called for them to be driven out of the land. Though, though Luther seems to have been upset by reports that Jews were trying to persuade Christians to avan- abandon the faith, his words nonetheless left a bitter taste in a land where anti-Semitism would have a tragic and wicked history. Meanwhile, the theological principles of the Reformation spread rapidly through Europe. In the next two sessions, we will take a look at their effects in both Switzerland and England. Okay, so what did he teach that got him into so much trouble? We've kind of covered the, 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 the course of his life and some of his overall, the overall broad brushstrokes of his history. But what really got him in trouble was the things that he was, that he was teaching. Actually, why don't we stop there? Are there any questions about just the, the, the details of Luther's life? We've got a couple minutes. Why don't I just want to throw it open for questions. Okay. So let's take a look at Luther's doctrine. What did he teach that got him into so much trouble? So just briefly, I'm going to summarize three doctrines that drove the Catholics and pretty much everyone else uh, crazy. Next slide. First one is justification by faith alone. If it is shown that our best works are sinful, then we cannot trust them to be the means by which we are saved. How then is the gospel applied to us? Luther answered this question in his his study of Romans 1.17. The just shall live by faith. There Luther Luther found his answer. The means by which God takes our sin and nails it to the cross and takes Christ's righteousness and applies it to us is by faith and only by faith. Luther, Luther I keep saying Luther. I don't know why exactly why I keep doing that. Apologize. Luther um, calls this the sweet exchange and the summary of all Christian doctrine by which the church stands or falls. Luther was so convinced by this that, he tra- that in his translation of the Bible into German, he added a word to the verse so that it read, the just shall live by faith alone. 
which is theologically accurate, but a terrible thing to have done to the word of God. So the just live by faith and faith alone. What does this mean for our practical lives? When we are freed from the burden of the law, both in terms of its condemnation and in terms of its placing the requirements on our lives to make us virtuous, how then shall we live? How shall we live if it's not by, by works? Luther's answer was this, however we want, provided we aren't sinning. That's the thing that justification by faith frees us to do. We can leave, we can live however it is we feel it is right, provided we are not in sin. All right, next, next slide. Uh, the, the second kind of theology, this one's a little bit harder to describe, so stick with me, is the, the, the theology of glory versus the theology of the cross. In Galatians 2.16 ends with the statement, by works of the law, no one will be justified. Have you ever really thought about what this means? Paul's not talking about sin. He's talking about what we would normally call virtue. And when Luther read this verse, it caused him a great deal of anguish because it means that our very best attempts to be good will not save us. So Luther pointed out that salvation is not a combination of Christ on the cross paying for our sin and our good works, but instead he argued that our very best is still full of sin. The Bible commands us to love our God and our neighbor, and then tells us that our very best attempts at such love are sinful. Of course, this is horrendously offensive to us as human beings. We don't like being told that we're sinners when we know we're sinning, and we really don't like being told we're sinners when when we're trying to do something good. But Luther called this, this attempt to combine these two things together the theology of glory, specifically the desire to establish our own righteousness or our own glory, however small that righteousness may be. We will go to our graves to defend that inherent spark of goodness upon which we think our salvation rests, that goodness that's within ourselves. So that's the, salva- that's the theology of glory on one side that, that Luther saw in the Catholic Church that he was fighting against. Uh, and in opposition to this, he held up the theology of the cross. Salvation comes when absolutely everything you are is recognized as insufficient and sinful and placed upon the cross. Both actively sinful things and your best attempts at virtue must be nailed to the cross, and in their place, the righteousness, righteousness of Christ must be received. The question is, how do we get this gospel applied to us? If we don't earn it by works, how do we take it and make it, make it ours? The answer that is Luther's resounding chorus is by faith alone. All right, next slide. The third thing that, that, that Luther taught frequently that uh, caused him so much trouble is the, is the believer's freedom. Uh, if Christ is totally and completely accomplished everything necessary for the work of salvation, if our sin is paid for and the law is totally obeyed, uh, what do we then do? Uh, the Luther's answer was, as long as you are not sinning, you may do what you please. In this, he was actually going back to and quoting Augustine. Love God and do what you want, is what he said. So, for example, if we as the church ask the question, should we or should we not have an organ in our church? That was a, that was a debate in his day. Should we or should we not have an organ in our church? Luther would say, because the Bible lays down no law on the topic, we may either have or not have one as we so desire. We are free because, the gospel, because in the gospel we have, we have joy in ourselves and in the world, not because we're wonderful individuals, but because of the cross and the fact that the cross redeems the world around us. Questions there. Questions on the things that Luther taught 
doctrines that he believed that caused so much trouble for him and sparked the Reformation. somewhat complicated phrase because of course what it means is that we're free to do what we ought not free to do whatever we want we actually the love God looms large in that because the true believer will want will will to do the things that honor God not love God and then not how some people interpret it love God and then do whatever the heck right it doesn't, it doesn't say love God and then do what you like. And not, and even though the sense of that would be the same, I think the word will was, pro, was chosen carefully by, by Augustine, most likely, because it's love God and do what you will, key, t- tracing back to and connecting back to the will of God. I think that's what he's trying to evoke there. Yeah, good comment. Any, que- any other questions up until this point? <laughs> All right. Uh, consequences or outflowings of Luther's life itself. Uh, go ahead and go to the next slide. Um, Lutheranism is the movement that comes out of Luther's teachings. So we're going to spend just a minute talking about that. Following his death uh, in 1546, several other men rose to guide the Lutheran church, including Philip Melanchthon, uh, Andreas Osander, and Martin Bucer. None of them had quite the same level of influence, but some, especially Melanchthon, were of equal brilliance and even better temperament. Uh, Luther, uh, as you might imagine, didn't really want his followers to be called Lutherans. Uh, he only wanted them to be called Christians. He said, The first thing I ask is that people should not make use of my name and should not call themselves Lutherans, but Christians. What is Luther? The teaching is not mine, nor was I crucified for anyone. How did I, poor stinking bag of maggots that I am, come to point where people call children of Christ by my evil name. Come to the point where people call the children of Christ by my evil name. Uh, in, the, in 1580, uh, shortly after his death, the book, the book of Concord was drawn up, which summarizes and defines Lutheranism in a way that most, most Lutherans since have agreed upon, however much they might have split over other issues. Um, from 1618 to 1648, Uh, Europe was caught up in one of its worst wars, called the Thirty Years' War. Uh, The war was fundamentally over who was going to control the religious nature of Europe. Um, At the end, though, it was clear that the divide between Protestants and Catholics was not going to be settled by force of arms. But as a result of this war, Lutheranism was not the dominant Protestant sect. So much of their energy was spent fighting that almost nothing was spent on missions or theological development. This meant that Anglicans, the Reformed, and a new sect called the Puritans surged ahead of them both in terms of numbers and in terms of theology. Lutheranism, as a result, has only experienced two major expansions in its history. The first was northward before the Thirty Years' War up into Scandinavia, sort of been around the end of the 1500s. Um, so just before uh, six, you know, 1618 is the beginning of the Thirty Years' War, before that, there was a big movement up into Scandinavia, and a lot of the Scandinavians are, are Lutheran as a result. The second was much later, uh, was a wave of immigration from Germany to the United States beginning in, at the beginning of the 18th century, right before the Great Awakening. 
uh, which, which means that America today has a, has a very large population of Lutherans, at least compared to most other countries. So as, as we come to the, to the outworkings of Luther's life, uh, I, I, it's just been interesting to see, because I've often wondered, it's like, Luther's the guy who started the Reformation, and yet, who's the guy that we talk about the most, at least in our circles, is Calvin, right? And which we'll cover him in detail next week. Um, but the reason why we don't talk about Luther as much is because they, they had to fight the Thirty Years' War, and that had significant impact on, on, the, on the outflow of Luther's kind of progeny itself within the church. All right, well, that's, that's everything that I have for today. Any questions about the beginning of the Reformation? What was that? Why do we have to will about God and do good things in our hearts? Because we just have to. <laughs> well, as, as unbelievers, our hearts are not righteous, correct? So we have to, our hearts have to be changed by the, by the power of Jesus Christ who died on the cross, right? And so as that, as that power works itself out in our lives, we need to be constantly deciding to do and follow Jesus as we, as we commit our lives to him. Good question. Mary Margaret, you had a question? So, yeah, so you have, in Luther, we have the actual start of the Reformation. It's, it's when, when we have Luther that we have, uh, and of course, you wouldn't have known this. If you were sitting in the pew listening to Luther, you wouldn't have known that he was necessarily different from Wycliffe or Huss or any of the, any of the, the predecessors of the Reformation that came before him. We know that now by, by, by seeing the total effect of what happened and the firestorm that he started. But so the difference between them is primarily historical uh, in a lot of ways, um, because in, uh, you know, in certainly when you have Wycliffe and Huss, they had teachings, they had followers. You had the Hussites who followed him, just like you had the Lutherans that were following Luther. It's just it didn't result in a large enough movement that it actually started to reform the church and change the church from the inside. Um, now, you had you also had differences in temperament. I mean, many of you who, uh, who have read anything about Luther know that Luther is a bit of, an, of a you know, polarizing figure, right? He said, I mean, we referenced it a little bit in terms of his comments about Jews. He said lots of things that he later had to apologize for because he was a, he was a very strong-willed man. And that is certainly part of what drove and what lit this firestorm, right? He, you know, his passion for this um, was, was significant. Um, he also hit upon this idea of, of you know, salvation by, by faith alone and was able to articulate that and crystallize that in a way that people were able to get a hold of. In addition to that, you have not only the invention of the printing press, but now the printing press is in full force, right? So you have, in the humanist movement just before him, which would have been after, um, uh, or, you know, which would have been after the, the, the invention of the press, um, you have a lot of, the press is being 
now used to reproduce all this stuff, including Luther's 95 Theses. You didn't have any of Hus or um, uh, uh, Wycliffe, thank you, (laughs) left my brain there for a minute. You didn't have any of their writings being just populated all over the place by being reprinted. Even though the printing press was available for things like the Bible and that started to happen, it's now that we really start seeing that becoming, you know, becoming a real force to be reckoned with. So, yeah, Skylar. On uh, Luther and Lutheranism's stance on uh, baptism, are they paid baptists? Yes. <laughs> I did think about that for a second. Yes, they are paid baptists. So they baptize infants. Love God and do what you will. Is that a pushback against uh, sort of the formalities and sacraments and requirements of the church? Like, what, what was the context of, like, that necessarily has something that is pushing back against. What exactly is that pushing back against? Certainly in Luther's day it was. Uh, you know, in, in Augustine, I think it was just him, you know, just trying to understand the Bible and what the Bible means and, you know, in, in, from his own context. So I don't know that it was necessarily pushing back against anything when Augustine wrote it. Certainly Luther was picking up that theme and saying, because the, the, the Catholic Church had lots of, you know, you, you have to do it this way and you have to go about it in this way and if you have to get this sacrament now and that sacrament later and if you want grace, you've got to do it. You know, they had all kinds of rules and, you know, if you really want, if you really want grace, you've got to pay your, you know, buy your indulgences and, you know, worship your relics and, you know, all this stuff. And what Luther was trying to say is, no, we don't have, that is not true. We have freedom as Christ's followers to follow Christ. We have freedom to follow Christ. That's what he was wanting to get across. And we do that not by works and doing what the church wants, but we do that by faith, not by works. Yeah. Thank you. About the graphic on the left-hand side, I noticed that was that something from Lutheran's time, or no? It's, it's kind of a, one of the general symbols of the Lutheran Church. You, if you look up the Lutheran Church, a lot of them use some form of this symbol as as the emblem. We don't. Uh, the five solas haven't been crystallized of the Reformation. Haven't been crystallized in Luther, but you, you certainly see the beginning of them. And you know, he's constantly going back to the Scriptures alone, faith alone. You know, by faith, you know, by you know, by grace through faith is Luther's anthem, right? So, yeah, yeah, good question. Any others? Yeah. Similar to Mary Margaret's question, I just can't understand how Luther was not killed. Yes. How Luther how was not he, killed? Yeah. How did he walk away from the diet of worms? I mean, <clears> yeah. So. He would have been. He was, he was given a short kind of brief time to get his, get his stuff in order. He was given 40 days to get his stuff in order. Um, and then, he was, then it was free to capture him and burn him at the stake. That was the, that was the judgment. But his prince uh, uh, ca- kidnapped him and hid him away at the castle in, in Wartburg. And so he, he spent a whole year there in hiding uh, so that nobody could find him. And really... By that point, history kind of took its, its, its course. So one of the things that we didn't have time to cover today that socially comes out of Lutheran's teaching is the peasants' revolt. So there's, there's, there's a massive uprising that, that comes after Luther uh, you know, is, is uh, condemned at the Diet of Worms. 
and there's a, there's a huge uprising. And by the time that uprising takes hold within Germany, that creates a safe, a safe place for, for then him to come out of hiding and just live the rest of his life in Germany because the, the Pope, who's really wants to, who's the one who really wants to get him, is not able to get to him because the, he, don't, he doesn't really control what's going on in Germany anymore because of, because of this start and incipient reformation that, that, that starts in the, in the people's revolt that, that comes out after Luther. And Luther struggles with that revolt. Um, there's lots of things that happen. There's lots of violence in that revolt that happens that Luther does not, does not condone. Uh, and he struggles with the, the fact that he was the one who instigated the thing. Um, I, I'm trying to remember the exact... There was a large rise in German nationalism generally. Mm-hmm. Peasant revolt is a, is a more concentrated thing. Mm-hmm. But, you know, so that there's just a whole groundswell of German identity that kind right. of... It, it's a kind of historical God's providential accident that's happening at the same time. Right, that's fair enough. Uh, Worms is a place. It's a, it's a town or a city. So, and a diet, like uh, we we're, were talking about the diet at Augsburg, a diet is, is not, it has nothing to do with eating. <laughs> it's, a, it's a technical term that deals with a, uh, a congregation of princes or estates that come together to make decisions about what's happening within their principalities or estates. So it's, ju- it's just a technical term that we have to Set aside what immediately comes to mind <laughs> that has to do with eating, nothing to do with food, and Worms is, Worms is the city in which it took place. I don't really know the answer to that question clearly. They both would have been present there. Um, certainly you had uh, Prince Frederick arguing on behalf of Luther in that context. Um, I, you know, the church, and the church certainly had a great deal of power in that context, right? At, at this, because until this time, up, leading up to the Catholic Church is in power in many, in many ways. You, yeah, you have, you have the outworking of feudalism. You've got the popes who are, who by this point, having come through the, the um, crusades, which built their power. You know, Pope Leo was among the was among the stronger popes that that came after that. So they have tremendous power, tremendous influence over the over the uh, the secular leadership and the kings. So they they wield it. You know, you know, basically the pope said, "I want this guy dead." The king, you know, the, in general, the kings and princes said, oh, "Okay, we'll we'll get that done for you." You know, um, so the power the the pope is the one who's really driving the 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 train against Luther because Luther, he understands that Luther is chopping at the roots of what, of his power and the, and the church's power overall. Yeah. He's at, the temporal power is actually that Charles, the emperor is the one who's actually presiding over the diet of Worms. And he's in this really odd position because he's both very strongly Catholic, passionately Catholic, but he also wants to protect his power over the, his rights as emperor over his subjects, so he wants to be the one that, decide, to, that protects his citizen. Right? He doesn't want the pope coming in and judging his citizen, which is Luther. Right? So he, he's actually trying to hedge a little bit, even though he ultimately wants Luther condemned. But he he, he has to do it in a way that maintains his authority temporarily. Right. So it's very very odd. Right, and it's and it's exactly that kind of tension 
that allows Frederick to advocate for him in the context of that. And Charles has to listen. And and you might know this better, Brad, but I'm guessing that that's really where this 40-day kind of, you know. But I think that probably has to do more with Charles has to be a just monarch. Right. And he gave a safe conduct to Luther, and he has to abide by that if he's going to be a just monarch. Right. Even despite what the Pope might want. Right. And I don't think Frederick defended Luther for religious reasons. I think it was political. I remember reading that somewhere, so I'm not sure that he was like... I mean... Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know the answer to that question specifically, but it's certainly true that everybody who had power in the Diet of Worms had their own agenda, right? They all had their agendas that they were trying to pull forward. And, you know, in some ways, it's this confluence of, of a, a whole boat, boatload of different agendas that allows for the Pope not to grab Luther by the throat in the context of that meeting right there, put him on the stake, burn him, and be done with him, Right? So all that, and all of that is God's providence in order for the spark of the Reformation to be lit and then for it to really take over Europe by storm. Yeah, so good. Well, we need to, we need to close it down there. We're after, we're, we're after our time. Um, let me pray for us and for our service. Father in heaven, we are so grateful to you for providing for us a salvation and preserving that salvation. Uh, today we were just looking at the fact that in so many ways the, 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 the salvation that you had put together had been obscured and had been corrupted by a, by a, by a corrupt church and corrupt church leaders and corrupt political leaders. Uh, and it was a mess. And yet, in the, even in the context of that, there has been a remnant of people, a remnant of faithfulness that has been tracing its way through the history of the church. And now you're in the process of setting it on fire with, the, with the, the history of Martin Luther. So we are so grateful for that. We're grateful to be recipients of his, uh, his teaching and his uh, activity uh, in, re- in reforming the church and providing for us a faith uh, to be believed and a, and a faith that is, that is founded upon this principle that we hold so dear that it is by faith alone, through grace alone, that we are saved. And so you would help us to live in that faith uh, as we go forward with our day. Father, we pray for your blessing on our service now, and we thank you for it all in Jesus' name. Amen.